Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. James 4, verse 7 to 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourned and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Thank you, Isaac. And we remember together, once again, that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's go to him and ask his help as we look at this passage together, please. Bow with me. Father, we come once again before you and just thank you for this day that you have made. And Lord, I pray that uh, your spirit would work in our hearts, that we truly would be glad and rejoice in it. And Lord, that you would uh, even now give us understanding as we look and continue to look at this letter that James wrote so many years ago. But Lord, we are reminded that uh, though James was the one who authored it, um, in a physical sense, and Lord, it comes in the context of, of uh, that specific time. We also know, Lord, that your spirit moved through him to bring about this letter, that it would be uh, an everlasting testimony, and uh, Lord, part of your scriptures, your inspired word, and so it is good and profitable for us this morning, and I pray that we would have ears to hear, even as Jesus admonished the church at Sardis, that Lord, that you would, uh, by your spirit, Give us such ears that we can hear um, what you're saying, that we can discern the truths that James is revealing, that we would not harden our hearts, Lord, as uh, is our natural tendency, but Lord, instead, there would be this humility, uh, which James describes, this drawing near to you, that we might experience the promise of you also drawing near to us. And we ask this all now, in Jesus' name, amen. I may be seated, thank you. Lord willing, we're going to finish off this section. I know, uh, as the title indicates, part five, we've kind of been here for uh, some time looking at this particular portion in the letter of James. And uh, so the title this morning is Rooting Out Worldliness, part five, as we continue to examine this problem that was addressed by James and we know is still very much a problem today in our own hearts and lives. And so 
want to focus this morning specifically on verse 8, this command and promise that James holds out to us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And I wonder if you've ever heard a wonderful promise or maybe you've ever been given a principle um, by which to live and a promised blessing if you do so, but then you neglect to follow through, you neglect to do what is commanded to you. Uh, I think often uh, back to Bible school, I took a course, uh, I'm sure I've told some of you this, but I took a course in Bible school called Basic Financial Planning. And in that course, the teacher very clearly and passionately laid out for us biblical principles for money management. Uh, you know, we learned about budgeting, we learned about the dangers of unwise debt, we learned about potentials of good investing, and so on. And in many ways, the teacher, um, as I continue to to know, know him and keep up with him, he lived that out. He tried to be diligent, and as a result, at age 50, he was able to essentially retire and, and, and begin to live on some of the investments that he made and, and really invest himself in his family and his church and, and uh, you know, reap the, the benefit of, of a disciplined life. Um, and uh, I look back and I think, man, if I would have walked in some of those things and all of a sudden, you know, 20 years goes by, and you kind of always think to yourself, well, next, maybe next month we'll try better and we'll do better and I'll apply some of those things better, right? And, and you find yourself never really reaping some of those potential benefits. And, uh, and while matters of money are certainly important and something we should, you know, continue to work at, that we be good stewards of all that God has entrusted to us, uh, how much more should we heed the promises of God's word regarding our walk with God and his promise of nearness and his abiding presence. How tragic that we often neglect the means that God has appointed for this to happen. And this is a prime example, this command, this instruction that James gives us in verse 8 to draw near to God and that if we will do that, if we will truly draw near to God, we have the promise that he will also draw near to us. And of course, as you know, this comes in the, the context of James addressing this problem of what could be called worldliness, this, this love for the things of this world, this adopting of the philosophies of this world that uh, had begun to take place among the Jewish Christians and uh, among even the Gentile Christians we know from other letters. And James is, is warning them and is exposing this in, in their midst. And uh, the, the results are evident, these passions that are at war within you and the desire to have, but you cannot have. And so you murder either in your own heart or even at times people giving themselves over to, to uh, actual murder. There's covetousness and quarreling. And, and, and James is, is saying that either you're, you're, you're coveting and you're trying to get things through violence or you're praying and asking God, but you're asking wrongness, so you're not receiving. And he really exposes this danger that is taking place even among those who profess faith in Christ of this clinging to the things of this world, adopting the worldview of this age, um, taking on the philosophies of this age, which he describes as friendship of the world. And he says to do so, you make yourself actually an enemy of God. And, and then we've been looking at the, the cures or what is the Christian response to this problem of worldliness? And so we've seen a few cures. I think in summary, you could say that the, the, the primary emphasis of James in responding to this problem is in humble 
repentance to God. And so we've looked at that of, of coming humbly before God, acknowledging our guilt, acknowledging our, our, our error in light of his word and humbling ourselves, asking forgiveness, not just justifying ourselves or excusing ourselves, but praying that God by his spirit would even enable our hearts to repent, even giving us a sense of, of sorrow where we know we have wronged the Lord. And so this humble repentance is a, is a way in which we battle worldliness. Uh, we also saw a few weeks back we were to resist the devil and with a promise that he will also flee from us. And we looked at that as well. And so this morning then, third response or the third cure um, to this danger of worldliness is that we are to draw near to God and the promise that he will draw near to us. Now, as we recall that James is writing to Jewish Christians, um, primarily, as he indicates in the start of his letter, and of course there's application for all Christians everywhere, but think for a moment um, how this may possibly even seem a bit strange to those early believers, the command to draw near to God. Um, Does that, at first glance, seem a bit unusual to us, even perhaps, that we would be instructed to do so? Because if you think back, in many ways, the Old Testament is a picture of and a reminder of the great separation that lies between God and man. Throughout the Old Testament, we see not only the devastating effects of the fall, and as man really progresses from, from, from bad to worse, and, and yet even as God establishes his covenant with Abraham and, and a covenant people with him, we, we get this clear sense early on, even after the fall, that, that one cannot casually approach God. One cannot casually draw near to him. Adam and Eve were quickly removed from the garden and actually prevented from ever entering back into it, a place that symbolizes their communion with God, the blessing of God upon them, the relationship that they had previously had. We know that even God's closest friends, we might say, and humanly speaking, like Moses, who was called a friend of God, God told Moses that you actually can't look upon my face or you will certainly die. You will be destroyed because because of the glory and the majesty of God that our physical bodies cannot withstand it. And we are an unclean people apart from the grace of God. So yes, God is gracious and loving to us and towards us through Christ, but we must not forget that he is also the unapproachable one. He is the one who wraps himself in light, unapproachable light, as Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.15. He says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. And as you read through the Old Testament, you you may be even overwhelmed at times with the great detail that God gave to Israel as to how they are to approach him. 
There is the specific structure of the the tabernacle, which would be followed by the, the temple. And there are various courts. And, of course, God's unique room, his unique dwelling place, the Holy of Holies, a room inside a room inside a room, if you will. Even if you came into the outer courts, you could never look upon the Holy of Holies. You could never just casually walk into this place, which represented God's presence among his people. And there was a court where the priests could serve and they were, they were set apart for this work and, uh, and they ministered there. And the average person could not even walk into those courts of the priests. And then there was the holy place inside the temple where the lampstand was and the incense and the, the showbread and the priests would minister there and tend to these things as God had instructed them. But I imagine even for the priest that would come into the holy place to do his daily duties in caring for the the lamp and the bread and the incense. That there must have been still a sense of trembling as this massive curtain separated him from the holy of holies. And there was always this awareness, even for the priests of Israel, that we cannot casually draw near approach this God to do so would actually be death. And we know that the high priest once a year was able to go into the Holy of Holies and there offer the the blood of the, the sacrifice. But even then, his every move had to be planned and and he had to, to do things exactly as he had been instructed to do, or the Lord's wrath would would burn against him and he would be consumed. And then there was the blood, this never-ending stream of blood flowing out of the temple. Because, as we know, in order for sinful man to approach a holy God, there had to be a sacrifice. There is this reminder that there's an atonement that must be given before God so that we understand the great separation between us and between God because of our guilt, because of our rebellion against him. And this is all throughout the Old Testament. Consider Israel when they are delivered out of the bondage of Egypt and they they come across the Red Sea being delivered by God. And after much wandering in the desert, they they finally come to Mount Sinai. And and remember, they told Pharaoh that actually they needed to leave Egypt because they wanted to go into the wilderness and there worship the one true God. And then they finally come to this mountain, this place which God instructed them to go, where he was going to meet with them. They would, they, would, they would finally meet with God and encounter the fullness of his presence. But even as Moses would go up on the mountain and, and meet with God and get instructions for the tabernacle and receive the law, that even as Moses is in the presence of God, his face begins to shine like the sun. And as he comes down the mountain, the people are terrified. Because his face is reflecting the glory of God. And they say, Moses, you you have to cover your face. You must put a veil on it. We don't want to see that. It's frightening to us. And as God came upon the mountain and the mountain shook and there was smoke and, and, and it was terrifying to the people. All of this screams to us that this God is an unapproachable God. One cannot just casually come before him and not be destroyed. And yet, then to have James instructing us 
to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I think in the Jewish mind, there may have been even a sense of hesitation that, well, to draw near to this God may be your own destruction. And maybe the words initially sounded strange. I think in our day and time, it's quite the opposite Uh, If we were to have a problem, it's not so much that we hesitate to to come before God, but there is rather this sort of flippancy, this sort of of casualness as we think about worshiping God and coming before him or calling upon him. Perhaps we have been so accustomed to living in the blessings of the new covenant that, that we forget sometimes of the holiness of God the majesty of God, the purity of God. We, we at times, even like Isaiah, can forget who we are. And, and it's when you receive a, flesh, a fresh a glimpse of the, the, the goodness and the majesty of God, you're reminded how holy God is and how unworthy I am. Now, somebody might say, yes, well, all that Old Testament stuff, that's all irrelevant now. We're in the New Covenant. We don't have to worry about all of that stuff. And, and certainly we praise God that the old covenant has given way to the new, that we don't approach God through, through priests. We don't have to you know, raise uh, tons of animals so that we can make sacrifices in the temple. And, and, and we remember that uh, Christ has come as our prophet, priest, and king. And we rejoice in the blessings of the new covenant in Christ's blood. But let us not forget that we do worship the same God. He has not changed. The God who met Israel at Mount Sinai is still the God that we worship today. He is still the Holy One. He is still the one who is pure and without sin and cannot even be tempted by sin. His nature has not changed. It's not as though God has become less holy or less uh, or, or more approachable, I should say. But the only change that made a difference was that Christ willingly satisfied the full fury and wrath of God against our sin as he hung upon the tree at Calvary and Jesus in himself receives the full wrath of God for our sins that we can then in turn understand how one can approach God and draw near to him. You see, Christ being the God-man opened the way through his own perfect sacrifice and resurrection and and the imagery of that temple curtain being torn from top to bottom, the temple that that once separated the priests from from uh, the holy place to the holy of holy place. And it's Christ um, is dying dying for our sins. This this curtain is, is ripped from top to bottom, indicating that through Christ, we have now access to God. Though God himself has not changed, what has changed is there has finally been given a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. The wrath of God is finally appeased through the Son so that we might draw near through Christ. Hebrews is very clear. The blood of bulls and goats actually never took away any sin. The sin was always there. The people were always under this wrath of God. And yet, as Christ offers himself and and satisfies God's anger towards all those who believe in him, then this way is made open 
which was once closed. And we rejoice that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father so that we might draw near through, through Christ, not on our own merit, but trusting in the perfection of Christ. This is why the author of Hebrews would write in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, a wonderful passage describing this very reality. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So there is now in Christ this boldness, this confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, he says, and there trust that we may find mercy and receive grace and help in our time of need because of what Christ has done in satisfying the wrath of God and now seated as our high priest, we truly can draw near unto God. And this is, this is incredible as we think about all of redemptive history and, and what seemed to indicate to us that, that we cannot just come before God it, 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 with boldness and confidence, but God is always one who is separate from us, one who is distant from us because of our sin. But now in Christ, our sin is removed and we are clothed, even as we saw in Revelation, in his righteousness, now called to draw near to God and the promise that he will draw near to us. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you um, got to experience something that, that you knew would be harmful if it was not for the equipment uh, that you either wore or were inside of something. I've never been parachuting, but I could just imagine the, the feeling of falling from a plane but not being, well, I'd probably be worried about it, but in theory, not being worried about it because you have a parachute that will help you land um, carefully to the ground. Or uh, I remember one time the boys went to see the fire department and uh, they were just getting a tour of the trucks and all of the equipment that the firefighters wear and all that sort of thing. And so they picked me to, to be someone who would wear, put, out, put on the equipment and kind of show the kids how all of this goes on and what it does. So they suited me up in the pants and the boots and the, the heavy jacket and the helmet and then also the, the face mask with the oxygen tank. Uh, I can't remember if I actually used it to, to breathe for a bit. I think maybe they let me try it um, just to get a feel for the, the, the equipment and the gear that these firefighters wear as they are trying to either rescue someone or battle a fire. And I have never actually been um, you know, part of a firefighting team. I know some here even are part of volunteer firefighters. We certainly appreciate what they do. And as you are in that equipment, um, you realize that, that now these men and women have an opportunity to, to go into a situation where most people are running away from. Because they have the ability to breathe in the, the potentially toxic smoke or they have the, the coat and the pants to protect them from the heat that could damage them, now they are the ones that are running into these places where everyone else is running away. And in a, in a way, as we think about 
what Christ has done and what it means to be in Christ. Excuse me. I went and played drop-in hockey on Friday. Nathan, I think my lungs are still wondering what I did to them. So uh, forgive me. But um, if you think about that picture of, of having this a protective equipment and then being able to go into a place where you actually formerly could not go, I think that's something of a picture of what Christ has done and what it means to be in Christ. <clears throat> we know the holiness of God is real and powerful and, and would consume us if not for what Christ has done. Even the angels that minister before God, we're told, cover their faces and hands and feet because of the majesty of God. And we are aware as flesh and bone that we don't have a chance to stand before this God to endure his majesty. But because he is gracious and just and a loving father, he has provided for us an ark. He has provided for us a hiding place And that ark is Christ himself. It's as we turn from our rebellion, as we believe upon Christ, we abandon all of the hope that this world offers us and we throw ourselves upon Christ, putting Christ on. It is then in Christ we are able to come before God, drawing near to him who once terrified us or would have consumed us in his wrath. Paul said it this way in Galatians 2.19, a wonderful uh, passage of scripture. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So you may think, well, Paul, make up your mind. Are you dead or are you alive? Which one is it? You seem to be saying that you're both dead and alive. And, and that is the, the mystery of, of the Christian that we know that, yes, I'm alive. I'm here in my flesh. But there is a part of me, that old nature, that old man that was, was linked to Adam, my forefather. And, and that rebellious spirit within me. As you come to Christ and you humble yourself, as James is describing, and repent of your sin, then there's a part of you that actually is crucified. You are joined to the death of Christ. So that as you are then raised by the power of the Spirit, Paul would say, it's actually no longer I who live, but it is Christ in me. I am now hidden completely in Christ And in Christ, I come not to a God who is waiting to crush me and destroy me in his wrath. But I come to now my father who loves me and receives me as a son because of what Christ has done. This is the glorious news of the gospel. And this is the only way that we can truly draw near to God. There is no other means. There is no other ark. There is no other sacrifice or or work of atonement. It's either you come and you die and you live with Christ or you remain in your sin and you will not have an ark in which to hide on the day of judgment. The New Testament writers make direct parallels even between the ark of Noah and Christ. I think Peter especially 
love this imagery of, of the, the judgment that's coming. And we know that it is coming. There is a season of grace, yes, where the, the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And we see uh, even evil men allowed to, to go on and prosper. I mean, we certainly see that in our own country where, where leaders will blaspheme God and mock the laws of God. And they'll call evil good and good evil. And it seems that for a time they get away with it. You know, we wonder, why does God not put an end to this? But let us not forget, as, as Peter said, that he is patient so that the fullness of the bride might be brought in. But there is coming a day when judgment will come. And if you are not in the ark of Christ, then you will stand alone against the full wrath and fury of God. And you actually have no business drawing near to God if not in Christ. But we also then have this wonderful opportunity. It is this uh, tension, which I know I, I fail to, to adequately explain. On the one hand, we see God is, is just and holy and unapproachable. But then in Christ, because of what Christ has done in his perfection and his holiness, then we are given the confidence of a child. The confidence of, of a child to, to go in the middle of the night and ask dad for a drink of water. Not afraid of dad's retribution, but knowing that because he is loved, that dad doesn't, well, he doesn't say he minds anyways. <laughs> Sometimes perhaps. If we were without sin, right? <laughs> but you, do you see the difference? In Christ, there is this command to draw near. And the promise that he will forgive. And, and the drawing near, you might say, well, okay, then what does it mean to draw near to God? How do we how do, we do that? And I think in, in the context of James, clearly it begins with humility. It begins with repentance, even as Jesus began the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. There must be this poverty of spirit, this coming to the end of yourself, that, that coming to Christ and, and, and saying, Lord, uh, I know that I have sinned. I know that I have offended you. And Lord, I know that I need to be crucified with Christ if I'm ever going to live as unto Christ. And, and nobody really wants to die. Our, our flesh resists that. Who wants to be crucified? Nobody wants to do that. And so, so there's this resistance. But we come knowing that we will also share in the resurrection. And so we, we begin in repentance and, and brokenness, and, and by God's grace, he causes our hearts to be made new in, in, in this new birth. And, and so, okay, we, we come continually in repentance as well, and that is a drawing near to God. And as a little bit of a side note, I know a lot of people are talking about this uh, revival that's supposedly happening in Asbury, and I, I don't know a lot about it, honestly. I looked a little bit into it and was trying to understand, okay, is this a genuine move of God? Is, is God truly working here? Um, God is, is ultimately the judge. But one of the things I was continually looking for in the reports that are coming and, and you know, video clips and all of that is, is there a sense of, of people's uh, need of repentance? Is there a sense of, of brokenness before a holy God? That really is the starting place. And if there is true revival, I'm fully convinced that that will be one of the primary indicators is that people begin to turn away from their sin. They begin to turn away from what they once loved and they begin to call 
What God calls good, good, and what God calls evil, evil. And so that is important as we think about uh, drawing near to God and God's work in our own day. This must be part of the gospel message. It must be what we call uh, the lost to, but we also call ourselves to, to continually walk in humility before God. But we also draw near to God through the means of grace that God has appointed. And uh, this is such a helpful, I know I, I kind of go talk about this uh, fairly often, but I think it is so important that we understand that God has given us means through which we draw near to him. Very practical, very clear uh, means of grace. This is why they're called means of grace. It's not that by doing them we earn the grace of God, but it's as we do them that we trust God will do what he has said he will do. And, and this is exactly, I think, what James is getting at, drawing near to God, trusting that when you do that, when you draw near, he will draw near to you. And uh, we can talk about the means of grace or spiritual disciplines. But there are many ways, like channels, upon which our soul may, may set sail for the presence of, of Almighty God. If you meet someone and, and, and maybe you haven't seen them in many years and you hope to catch up with them, you want to talk with them again, what do you do? You say, well, how can I get in contact with you? You know, are you on Facebook? Are you on Messenger? Can I get your cell number or your email? Is there a way in which I can communicate with you and we can continue to you know, build this friendship or whatever it might be? And so the means of grace are the way in which we, we reach out to God. We, we walk in communion with God. And I know I often list um, Don Whitney's 10 means of grace he used in his book, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. But I just think they're so very practical and helpful for us. And, and it's a good reminder of things we need to be giving ourselves to. The 10 things he had listed, which is in no way you know, an exhaustive list or the final list, but the intake of scripture as a means of grace, a spiritual discipline that we must give ourselves to. This is a way in which God has said, as you come to the Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, as you come to the scripture and you read it and you meditate on it and you memorize it and you sing it and you pray it, that is a way in which you draw near to God. And secondly is prayer. When you commit yourself to praying, Praying privately, praying as families, praying corporately, praying when you're driving, praying as you're laying down to go to bed, praying when you wake up, praying at mealtimes. We, we, we pray to God as a way to draw near to him. Worship, um, either in singing, um, corporate worship, but there's also um, well, really all of it is a form of worship. All of life is really a worship unto God, but he's getting at the, the corporate worship of the saints specifically, coming here together and lifting up your voice in song is a way in which we draw near to God. He listed number four was evangelism. Sharing the gospel uh, is terrifying, but also an incredible way to, 
to draw near to God, to use the means of strengthening your own faith, strengthening your own understanding of the word. It's one thing to understand something, but if you have to try and then communicate that to someone else, uh, it, it's often real, you often realize like, oh, I, I need to think through that better or I need to you know, adjust this here because in trying to share that with someone, it really does solidify it in your own heart and mind. And uh, there's a tremendous blessing in evangelism. Also in um, serving, he said was number five, another means of grace, serving one another. And it can be in the most practical of ways. I know I'm so grateful for all of the, the young people here to see how you are eager to help and serve the body, whether it's collecting you know, hymn books after the service or dishes or helping clean up. I mean, these are, these are means of grace as you, as you give yourself to that, to the glory of Christ, you also are drawing near to God. Six was stewardship, managing all that God's given us. Seven is fasting. That's something we don't probably talk enough about. But uh, there are times when it is right to, to abstain from food for the purpose of drawing near to God. That I'm going to, to not eat maybe for a meal or two meals or a day or a few days, whatever it is you decide. Um, something about hunger pains that, that can actually be very instrumental in, in, in reminding you of your greater need of Christ, your greater need of his sustaining presence and word. And, uh, and so in fasting, you, you leverage those cravings for food to redirect that to God and, and can be a tremendous means of grace and, and of drawing near to God. Eight was silence and solitude. Maybe going for a walk or... Finding a, going for a drive and, and just praying to God, meditating upon his word. Number nine was journaling, learning to write. I find that one of the most difficult ones to find time and, uh, I guess, ambition to do that. But it can be helpful as well. Even the study book sometimes we use for um, Bible studies is a form of journaling. Just writing out answers can be uh, a means of grace to you. And learning was number ten. So these are all very practical ways which I think the scripture holds out to us to, to draw near to God day by day and, 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 and then the trusting the promise that as we do these things, as we truly seek after him in humility and repentance, putting on these means of grace, God will in turn also draw near to you. And that really is an incredible promise. The God of heaven, the one who created created all of the stars and knows them by name, says, if you will seek after me, if you will draw near to me in the means that I have given you, then I will draw near to you. And it's mysterious to us, isn't it, how God responds to our prayers. He responds to our pursuit of him, though, yes, he is sovereign over all things and decrees all things. But let us never use the sovereignty of God as an excuse to neglect these clear commands and trust the promises. Don't say, well, if God ordains that I pray today, I guess I will pray today. No, pray today because God commands that you pray. And he says, when you pray, when you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. 
And the, the secret things that belong to God as far as how his, in his sovereignty he works in the prayers of the saints and, and the pursuits of his people, that, that is not really for us to understand. We, we trust in his sovereignty. We trust in, in his control over all things and his decrees. But we also are given clear things to do. And we are to give ourselves to those with every fiber of our being, praying that God would give us strength to pursue him. And if you're here this morning and you've not found refuge for your soul in Christ, then I urge you to call upon him today. Believe in Christ, who is the only way in which we can draw near to God. Only through his blood and his resurrection can we be brought to God, our creator and our redeemer. And put on the new covenant sign of baptism. Baptism in water does not save us, but it is the sign that Christ appointed that would be given to all of his disciples. All of those who who are saying, yes, I am trusting in Christ. I have repented of my sin. And I believe that his sacrifice is sufficient to satisfy all of the wrath of God against me. To remove my guilt. And I am displaying publicly that I have been crucified with Christ. I have been buried with him in that old man and now raised up to walk in newness of life. So I urge you to flee to Christ. And if you are here as a believer, then continue to draw near, continue to press on in those means of grace that God has given and to encourage one another in that. And as the psalmist, may we also pray O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Psalm 63, 1-8. Let's close there this morning, and we will finish with a song. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, uh, Lord, we know that we just only begin to really scratch the surface of these great truths. But Lord, I pray that we would never lose the wonder and the beauty of what you have done in Christ. Lord, that you are high and lifted up and exalted. And Lord, that your majesty is unmatched by any creature that you have made. And Lord, that in in our fall as humanity, it would have been perfectly just for you to just leave us in that place of condemnation. Even as the angels, Lord, received swift uh, judgment and know nothing of your grace, know nothing of your redemption, Lord. We don't understand why it is that you set your mercy and grace upon us, that Christ would become man clothed in our weak and frail flesh 
Lord, to bear up under the law that once stood against us as condemnation, and then to offer up his very life that we might be forgiven, Lord. We might be crucified, but then raised to life as a new people. We are just amazed at at this grace and kindness that you have poured out. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us to hold these things in tension, help us to be discerning, Lord, and I pray that, that we would truly draw near to you, that we would receive this command of James as we battle uh, indwelling sin and the flesh and the devil, Lord, that we would seek after you as, as a man in a desert would seek after water or somebody who hasn't eaten for days would pursue food. May we have such uh, a desire to, to draw near to you day by day. And Lord, that our children as well would receive that same desire by your spirit. We look to you to accomplish these things within us. Lord, forgive us for often our complacency and indifference to these blessings and privileges. But God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for our faithful high priest who will not leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, who will certainly finish the work that he has begun. And we rejoice in this this morning, I pray. All this in his name. Amen.